This is an ABC podcast. I look forward to leading a government that makes Australians proud. This election didn't just change a government, it was a green slide. Safe Liberal seats, two term incumbents, independents. We need to go back to our values, our principles, look closely at what has happened. Our policies will be squarely aimed at the forgotten Australians in the suburbs across regional Australia. Welcome to the party room. I'm Fran Kelly on Gadigal land of the Aora Nation. And while PK takes a well-earned break, as we like to say in this business, I'm honoured and thrilled to be joined this week <laughs> by a name that many of you will know, especially if you've been keen listeners of RM Breakfast over the years. I'm joined now from Ngunnawal land by Alison Carabine, a Walkley Award-winning member of the Press Gallery in Canberra for many, many years and for the past 13 years, political editor on RM Breakfast, doing the hardest job, I think, around setting up the political coverage for PK and myself and others over those years. I couldn't have done what I did on breakfast for so long without her, and now she's leaving. In fact, she's left, actually. <laughs> Wednesday was a love day with breakfast. So on her way out the door, I've grabbed her to join us on the party room this week. Ali, great to have you before you slip out the door. Well, only the F train Frank Kelly could possibly drag me back from my first day of not being employed as a journalist or by the ABC, but I will return the compliment. There was no way I could have done what I have just done if it wasn't for and with you, Fran. So All thank right. you for everything over the years. Well, toot toot. Let's get on the F train again, Ali. <laughs> and let's start where the political week started this week in Paris with a meeting between Prime Minister Albanese and President Macron. The Prime Ministers presented this very much as an important economic and strategic visit, basically, you know, in Labor's words, cleaning up Scott Morrison's mess in the wake of the broken subs agreement with France. And on that score, it does seem to have worked. Here's the French President after what seemed to look look like, anyway, a very warm and friendly meeting with our PM. We always speak about the future, not the past. He's not responsible of what happened. He's not responsible for what happened. Basically, Emmanuel Macron uh, giving Anthony Albanese a, a clear bill of health when it came to tensions with France over the subs, not holding a grudge for Scott Morrison's actions. Is this just two leaders playing it up for the cameras and their domestic audiences, Ali, or something more important than that, do you think? Oh, look, I think it is something much more important than that, given France's position and influence in the Pacific. It's not a minor player in the Pacific, which is now a very key geostrategic region for the entire world. And it certainly wasn't in France's interests and not in Australia's interests for us not to have some sort of bipartisan engagement going forward. We had to move on from the disaster that was the French subs fiasco. And that's what the two leaders have finally been able to do. And of course, the catalyst was the federal election. So it's not just a matter of playing politics. It is also in the, the two countries' own national interest to, to put that whole unfortunate episode behind us. Yeah, strategic and economic. Um, Anthony Albanese then went up onto Ukraine. Now, that was a pretty risky visit and it was highly and confidentially organised, as trips like this are. Uh, it took him off the grid for a few days. Some in the opposition were critical of all this time abroad by the new Prime Minister. Ali, I want to know what you think of that. I would think a new leader visiting a war-torn country at this moment of geopolitical tensions between Russia and China and the West, this would be probably a very important visit and a very searing perspective for a new leader to have. That's what I would think. I wonder what you think about that. 
Well, it depends on whether or not Australia wants to engage with the rest of the world. I mean, do we want to be a player? Do we want to be a country that cares about the rest of the world and wars in the, the, the very centre of Europe? We can't just hide away at the other end of the world uh, pretending that it doesn't matter. Anthony Albanese is the national leader. He was invited to the NATO summit and then there was this arranged uh, uh, journey into Ukraine, of course he had to go. And the the, the criticism by the uh, opposition, I think most people would scoff at the notion that Anthony Albanese showing solidarity in Ukraine is akin to Scott Morrison on holiday in Hawaii. Well, let me now, stop you there. Let's yeah, sure. hear some, let's hear the criticism from uh, Shadow Treasurer Angus Taylor and then Albanese's response. It was flooding for 48 hours and he's only just picked up the phone to Dominic Perrottet to ask if he needs a hand. So there's 30,000 people who have been told to evacuate their homes, but the PM's more concerned about his reputation on the global stage than, than making a call like that and making sure people in New South Wales have a place to sleep. I think that says more about uh, the people who've laid the criticism uh, than it does about myself. And uh, some people apparently didn't get the memo about the new politics. Um, so it's Anthony Albanese, they're making a point. What do you think, Ali? Was that a misfire? I mean, it's not Peter Dutton saying this, but you'd think he would have had to sign off on a couple of his senior front benches firing off critiques like this. Smart or dumb politics? Well, I think just irrelevant politics. Now, it is a message that could resonate if you are a person in Windsor, for example, whose house has just flooded for the third time this year. Mm. They may take a different view from the rest of the country. But ultimately, though, no one is listening to the coalition. There is nothing more irrelevant than a first-term opposition. What, six weeks after being thrown out of office, the coalition might be trying to create this impression of a, a leader missing in action, but voters won't start tuning into what it really has to say about anything for at least another 18 months or so. But Labor does have to be pretty careful about this, though. It did make a huge fuss over the Morrison government's slow response to disasters, whether they be fire or flood. It knows that it will now be held to the same standard, what, which is why really it approved those disaster payments so quickly, mm. why the Prime Minister visited the flood zone as soon as he was home from overseas. Yeah, I'll come back to that in a second. But um, I think the right, you were right, though, that point you made earlier, to try and compare a visit by a leader to a, a country at war like Ukraine or under assault from Russia like Ukraine to a Prime Minister going on holiday to Hawaii, particularly when the, all the focus groups in the election campaign, Ali, were, the people conducting them were reporting, well, you know, I heard it a number of times from those people suggesting that in every focus group when talking about Scott Morrison, it always, always at one point came to the Hawaii trip when the bushfires are on. So people remember that. They really, really held that against Scott Morrison. I don't think anyone would see this in the same light. No, I don't think they could because um, certainly the, the Prime Minister's I Don't Hold a Hose Mate, which came to almost characterise his Prime Ministership, it just underscored people's views about Scott Morrison as a smug, out-of-touch leader. And that is one lesson that Anthony Albanese would have watched very, very closely mm. and he will be very, very careful not to repeat. And Ali, you've, you know, you've watched politics for a long time. It seems to me that... Often new leaders come into power and their leadership and their international perspectives are shaped by an event quite early on. And in this case, I'm wondering if you see this 
the, 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 the war in Ukraine, Anthony Albanese visiting there for himself, seeing with his own eyes, and you could see in the, in the footage he was, you know, clearly distressed. How could you not be by some of what you witnessed there in terms of attacks on civilian buildings? Likely to influence his leadership, his prime ministership. I think it would have to. Uh, Anthony Albanese has just been afforded uh, a, a very rare international perspective into a war zone in the middle of civilised Europe. So I think it would have to, Fran. It's not quite on the same scale as, you know, John Howard and Port Arthur because that, that did require a legislative response when it mm. came to gun control. But it could indeed shape his um, views when it comes to how we engage with the rest of the world, how we engage with NATO and indeed China and Russia. Mm. And... Um let me remind everyone that, Ali, you were there with John Howard on, on 9-11 in Washington when the Pentagon was hit and obviously we all know what happened on 9-11. That very much framed John Howard's foreign policy from then on in, didn't it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it was on his way back from the United States when he was flying across the Pacific, when almost every other plane in the world was grounded, when he decided to invoke the ANZUS Treaty. And that led to our engagement in Iraq and Afghanistan, or Afghanistan um, really when it came to 9-11. So we cannot underestimate how these personal, very searing experiences can have on a national leader. And again, they need to be out there in the world. They can't be hidden away here at home afraid of what a, a um, jumped up front bencher from the opposition might be saying about him being missing in action. Mm. Um, before we leave the international sphere, because there's a lot of domestic pressures, obviously, the floods, number one, it's worth noting, I think, a speech given by Foreign Minister Penny Wong in Singapore this week, Ali, our new Foreign Minister really laying out quite clearly, I thought, Australia's foreign policy, that being of a, a, a nation multicultural at its heart, located firmly and centrally within Southeast Asia, representing the, the shared strategic, economic and value-based interests of the region with the respect and support for a, a global rules-based order. It was a very personally infused speech, reflected her own Malaysian heritage, um, talked about Australia's very multicultural population. But most importantly, I think, a good attempt to clearly lay out Australia's foreign policy direction and priorities. And it struck me that I think we've been missing that. The previous foreign minister was not a particularly frequent or powerful public communicator. We saw with Julie Bishop when she was foreign minister that that skill actually is an important one on the global stage and in terms of bringing the Australian population with you on difficult strategic challenges. So I think, you know, I would rate this as a very good start in the job by Penny Wong and, a, and quite an important speech last night. Yeah, well, it's been a very active start by Penny Wong, and I think this speech is probably the culmination of uh, her um, uh, active round of visits to the region. Penny Wong in this speech says she's open to engagement with China, but any rapprochement will depend on Beijing lifting the trade sanctions against Australia, and the minister wants China to be much more assertive with Russia over its Ukraine invasion. So I think the overarching message that she's taking to uh, uh, the, the region, specifically to China, is a willingness to engage, but it must be on Australia's terms. Now, there is a good chance, Fran, that Penny Wong will meet her Chinese counterpart, Wang Yi, at the upcoming G20 in Bali. Now, if it does come to pass, I think it will be a meeting of the ages, given the way Penny Wong helped convince Pacific Island states not to sign that proposed security pact with China. It would be fair to say that Wang Yi has met more than his match in Penny Wong. Well, we'll see, I suppose. And 
uh, Australia, you know, they have to hold that line, don't they, to, say, to show that, you know, in no way is there appeasement going on here, that there won't be a thaw in relations until all those trade bans are dropped, for instance. It's a very strong message from first the Prime Minister and now Penny Wong. Yeah, and we wouldn't expect anything less from an Australian government looking out for the national interest, whether right. it be a coalition government or a Labor government. Well, the PM's back home. Penny Wong will be back home by the end of the week. They've both got their work cut out for them. He's the Prime Minister, and she, of course, is the leader in the, of the government in the Senate. Um, a string of domestic issues, Ali, the floods in New South Wales we just mentioned, and another rate rise handed down by the Reserve Bank on Tuesday, increasing the crash rate by 0.5 percentage points to a new rate of 1.35%. The third rate rise in three months. The RBA warning more's on the way. Here's the Treasurer, Jim Chalmers. The skyrocketing costs of essentials like groceries and petrol and electricity and other essentials as well is putting extreme pressure on household budgets and that this interest rate rise will add to the pain that people are feeling. Now, Australians with an average mortgage will have to find about $90 a month at the same time as they contend with those costs of essentials rising. For someone with a $500,000 mortgage, it's more like $137 a month. Ali, that's a lot of pain and the Treasurer's yeah. strategy seems to be to keep us all abreast of how bad things are and, and basically bringing us into the confidence, if you like. But what levers is the government able to pull here to reduce the strain on households? Because much of it's out of their hands, you know, global pressures, the, the impact from Ukraine and the pandemic, for instance. Yeah, sure. And there will be more rate rises in coming months. There's one lever that the government could pull, but it won't. And that is the restoration of the full 44 cents a litre fuel excise, which will occur in September. And that will add more pain at the pump, mm -hmm. adding to cost of living pressures for, for households. Now, um, Jim Chalmers has consistently ruled that out simply because we've had the excise halved for the past six months and it has cost $3 billion. It won't be extended because of the cost of the budget. Mm. Now, Jim Chalmers and Katie Gallagher, they have been going through the budget with a fine-tooth comb to come up with some savings. Now, there will be some spending cuts in the October budget, but I wouldn't be expecting anything major or structural. It will just be any of the largesse left over from the previous government. So there won't be any real fiscal restraint to try and keep the pressure off inflation, try and hammer inflation back into submission, which of course is the whole point of the Reserve Bank lifting interest rates. So all the heavy lifting will be left to the Reserve Bank. It will be monetary policy, not necessarily fiscal policy. There's not a lot that this government can do about it. So basically all the heavy lifting left to us <laughs> and people with mortgages, I guess. Um, Ali, you mentioned floods earlier. Government in opposition, Labor in opposition, was very critical, as were flood victims of the Morrison government's response times and support after that major flooding event in and around Lismore um, earlier this year. There's been a noticeable change under the Albanese government. They've been moving quickly, working very closely with the Perite government in New South Wales. And you can see the politics behind that, as well as just, you know, instincts to help people. But Beyond that, Ali, this is the fourth significant flood event for the people in some parts of New South Wales in the past two years. It's a pattern. Climate change is real and present. It demands a different approach in terms of adaptation and mitigation. It will cost billions and billions of dollars because of this. Does this put more pressure on the Climate Minister, Chris Bowen, when he introduces legislation, which I think he said he'll do on the first day or certainly the first sitting week of this new parliament later this month to formalise the 43% 2030 target? Or is all the pressure 
on the opposition, even more pressure on the opposition now to back in that legislation, which so far Peter Dutton says they won't do. Yeah, yeah. Well, Peter Dutton will come under internal pressure, however, from his own backbenchers to do more on this because there are a a number of city-based MPs, those that are left from the election, who do want to see 43% legislated. Now, the coalition often argues that we'll probably get to that level anyway. They just don't want to put it into law. So uh, uh, Peter Dutton will be squeezed by his own party room to support that legislation. It's unfathomable that we could have a major party in this country still opposed to having a decent stab at reducing emissions. So I think the, the, the pressure will be on Peter Dutton, probably also the Greens to get on board and, you know, drop their previous approach of allowing the perfect to be the enemy of the good. But I think this debate really needs to range beyond uh, a political response to climate change. And maybe we, we're going to have to finally look at possibly governments buying out homes that are on floodplains. Mm. These these homes, they've been inundated repeatedly. They can no longer get insurance. If it is available, it's unaffordable. Maybe it's time for governments to step in, just like the New Zealand government did after the Christchurch earthquake, and, and buy up people's homes and relocate them. They should never have been allowed to build in some of these areas in the first place. It was a, a, a mistake made by policymakers, and policymakers really have to fix it. Sure, but it was a mistake made in different times, in different climate times, I suppose. I mean, these are huge structural changes and would cost billions. Um, It's hard to see governments being there yet, really, at that point yet, isn't it? No, no. And so we're we're pouring all this money into trying to clean up the mess, fix up the consequences of these natural disasters, which which report after report are showing have been caused by the climate changing. And we're spending so little money by comparison on mitigation. There really has to be a total rethink of how we mm. approach, how we live on this land, Fran. Mm. Um, Ali, just before we leave sort of party politics, there was some major score settling uh, going on inside the New South Wales Liberals on Four Corners this week. But uh, one thing I really took note of was the suggestion, a report that Tony Abbott could be putting his hand up to be president of the New South Wales Liberals. Um, is Tony Abbott the answer to their troubles? Well, he could be. Um, he hasn't yet confirmed whether he'll nominate to run the New South Wales Liberal Party, but he's not denying it either. And it shouldn't really come as a surprise, given the recent debacle in the state division. You would recall all the factional shenanigans that meant nine candidates, I think it was, in, the, in New South Wales seats were not pre-selected until just days before the mm. election was called. Now, how the heck they think they could win those seats doing it that way? And of course, they didn't. I suspect Tony Abbott might want to seize control of the division to try and revive his plan to give all party members a vote in pre-selections in their local electorates. That was the so-called Warringah motion, which was watered down a couple of years ago by the moderate faction so that party officials still have a say. So, I, And I that's sus- because, isn't it, the party base is always more conservative than the, um, yep. than, than the elected MPs themselves generally, so that if you have it that way, you're going to end up with a more conservative bunch of candidates uh, yeah, selected, that's right. And it, it's the right wing of the party that is behind this push yeah. to introduce more grassroots ballots. Now, 
if he does nominate against the current president, Philip Ruddick, it, it would set up a mighty clash for factional control of the division. Okay. But it, it's, it certainly does need sorting out. Okay. Well, that's internecine, though it could have an impact down the track. More sort of immediately is the issue of what does the Liberal Party do about women? It just doesn't have enough of them. It doesn't attract enough female voters and it doesn't attract enough um, and it will pre-select enough female candidates in winning seats. Senator Linda Reynolds was out and about this week discussing quotas, gender quotas. Now, this has been an absolute no-go area for the Liberal Party since I've been covering politics, Ali. Is this a real push or going nowhere? Oh, look, it's one of those um, merely mouth pushes, I'm afraid. <laughs> um, th- let's just look at the numbers, first of all, because the numbers don't lie. Just nine, nine of the Liberal Party's 42 members in the lower house are women. That's just one in five. Wow. That is the worst result, the lowest proportion in 30 years. So Linda Reynolds is now spearheading this push within the party, try and improve the pre-selection of women. She says the party no longer looks like the people it's supposed to represent. And it won't win an election until this problem is fixed. She has support among her female colleagues, but they're all still strangely reluctant to go all out for quotas, which Labor adopted way back in, uh, was it 1994? 1994, I think. Yeah, yeah, You and and I think we're both at that conference. We were. (laughs) And we we watched Joan Kerner dancing in celebration. Gee, that was a long time ago. And it has worked in the Labor Party to improve the gender split to almost 50%. Now, we also had the backbencher Melissa McIntosh through the week telling Four Corners that you can have all the quotas in the world, but it will be a revolving door of women if it doesn't address the culture within the Liberal Party. She herself has complained about um, thuggish and bullying behaviour of some men in the party, not the parliamentary party, but the broader Liberal Party. But really, Fran, it's a circular argument. The Liberal Party won't be able to change its culture, that is, of a middle-aged boys' club, unless there are more women in Parliament Mm. and in positions of power. And that will take quotas. Now, forget the merit argument. If, If... People were elected on merit. We wouldn't have a case where just one in five of the Liberal Party's 42 members in the lower house are women. That yeah. that stat alone just completely torpedoes the merit argument. But it's not going to happen just by osmosis. Malcolm Turnbull, when he was Prime Minister, he introduced a 50% target, not a quota, a target, 50% gender split by 2025, but there was nothing to back it yeah, up. It's changed. Nothing happened. Nothing to underpin it. That's why we're now in a position that the Liberal Party is now in its worst position in 30 years. Yeah, okay. It'll be interesting to see how they move on this. Ali, let's talk COVID because a grim milestone was passed in Australia this week. 10,000 COVID deaths, 5,000 in the last few months alone. We'll be looking at 15,000 deaths at least, it's suggested, by the end of the year. We're bracing for another big wave of COVID infections later this month. We've got two new variants on the march, Omicron subvariants BA4 and 5, apparently more infectious, potentially more serious in their effects. Some health experts are calling on the government to go beyond the current response. Let's have a listen to Professor Karen Phelps. She's a former AMA president and a former member for Wentworth, of course. Let's hear what she had to say this week. Just saying live with COVID is not a strategy. It's a slogan. The strategy needs to include widespread use of masks. That's Karen Phelps speaking earlier this week. Ali, is that a fair call? Has everything and everyone become a bit complacent? There's no hullabaloo about the deaths from COVID anymore. I noticed that the New South Wales Chief Medical Officer, Kerry Chant, she's back on the hustings this week, urging us to wear masks, but not talking mask mandates yet. Yeah, I think we might need a national cabinet meeting on this to try and get the states all on board about 
mask wearing. There's an interesting stat from the Victorians, Fran. When you mandate mask wearing, you get 90% compliance. When it's voluntary, it's only 50%. Yeah, right. Yeah. Now, given the the way COVID is again taking off in Australia, the the winter outbreak, I think we are going to get to a position where governments across the country do need to have another look at mandating mask wearing and also uh, reintroducing some social distancing requirements. I mean, the last thing we want, and it probably won't happen because of our vaccination rates, is more economic shutdowns, lockdowns. It's yeah, but the they're easy... happening inadvertently by infections in a way, yeah. aren't they? You know, yeah. restaurants can't open the number of d- days they want to. In, around where I live, there's some cafes that only open a few days because they just can't get the staff. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And just as Labor owns the flood response now, it also owns mm. the COVID response, especially given how hard it campaigned last year on vaccine rollout. The big challenge not just sorting out mask mandates again, but we'll be getting more people fully vaccinated. It will be helped by that Atagi decision to approve a fourth dose for a lot more people. One thing I think that's worth uh, watching closely, though, Labor last year came out with an action plan to deal with COVID. Now, most of it was to do with what was going on last year with Mm. uh, vaccine rollout and so forth. But it did promise to build more dedicated quarantine facilities. Now, that was a repeated pledge given the way the virus kept escaping hotel quarantine. But since the election, we haven't heard any more about those facilities. And they will be needed. Now, if if not for COVID... But how can you use them, Ali, if if we're not even demanding people who come into the country now are vaccinated? There's no point having quarantine facilities. Yes. Well, that that, that is quite an extraordinary decision by the government. This week, people arriving in Australia will no longer have to prove that they are vaccinated. That requirement has been dumped. Mm. I think partly because the uh, the app that people were supposed to use to upload their vaccination status was extremely slow and clunky, was causing delays at airports and we need to get more tourists, more yeah. international but, students into the country. But we also so need forth. to get a handle on this. I mean, Anthony Albanese promised during the election campaign to commission a COVID plan very quickly to deal with rising infection rates. Some of that was going to be about basic communication that he obviously felt the communication uh, to the nation was not strong enough about people getting boosted, getting their boosters. We've now got this, as you say, overnight, we're recording this on Thursday morning, it seems as though Atagi has opened up the fourth booster shot to people over 50s, possibly even over 30s in some cases. So the response is more vaccination, the response is more antivirals, but just getting infected is dangerous for some. The the statistic I've seen is that one in five people who get COVID go on to have complications, what we might call long COVID, some of them very severe. And there doesn't seem to be any real talk about this or acknowledgement about this. And that's where things like the mask mandates come back in to try and stop the spread without going into full lockdown mode. Obviously, that's not going to happen. Yeah, and you think that's the easy solution, but it's just not happening. That's why I think it probably will be a matter for National Cabinet. And, of course, the other issue that has to eventually be dealt with is health funding. That's been kicked down the road until the end of the year. But our hospitals are still under enormous strain from this winter wave of COVID infections, and it's a problem that the government must tackle without much further delay. Yeah. Ali, you've not been here as co-host of the party room before, so let me fill you in. Every week we have a thing called Question Time. Questions without notice. The Leader of the Opposition. Thank you, and and I'm pleased the question time at least is happening, Mr Speaker. 
I say it every week. We've really got to update that now. He's the Prime Minister. But, Ali, this week's question is from Linton Tapp, who says, Hi, Fran and PK. Love the show and the effort that goes into it. I'm sure Linton would include you in that, Ali. Um, what Hi, was at the heart of the Liberal National Party shunning the ABC, especially in the last term of being in government? Surely they were smarter than ideological politics for an opportunity to get their message to the Australian public, no matter what broadcaster. What do you reckon, Ali? Look, it's a great question, but I would narrow it to the Liberal Party, not necessarily the National Party. Now, the Nats love the ABC because we are broadcast in their electorates right across the country. The problem was more with the Liberal Party, not all Libs. Some embraced the opportunity to speak with our audience, but of course many didn't. And I think it did come down to ideology. Yeah. Let's not forget Peter Dutton saying that the ABC is dead to me. Now he will be recalibrating that view now that he's opposition leader. He doesn't have that luxury. Yeah. But yeah, I think it largely does come down to ideology. Yeah, it does seem to be that. So I remember when Tony Abbott as Prime Minister way back then, you know, the ABC was reporting on um, on asylum seekers and the government didn't like it. And Tony Abbott said, to, you know, to the ABC, whose side are you on? Yeah. You know, that was a very pointed question. He stopped coming on. When I, I when I was hosting RM Breakfast all those years, that was the first time that a Prime Minister basically stopped coming on the program. Up until then, we'd had very good service to RM Breakfast, which is, you know, a very politically based program from Prime Ministers of the Day. Malcolm Turnbull reversed that. He would come and speak to the audience. Scott Morrison, once he became Prime Minister, stopped again. I do think it was an ideological change. I do think it was short-sighted, Ali. I remember John Howard saying to me when he was Prime Minister that he would always, always accept a challenge from Kerry O'Brien to come on the 7.30 report because he would never want to be seen to be, um, you know, scared of the hard interview. So he always made it a point of saying yes if he got a, a request from Kerry O'Brien because he saw that as, you know, basically the, um, the the strong position to take. Yeah, and I think the flip side of that is too many politicians today will only front up to what could be a difficult interview if it's in their self-interest, mm. if they've got something to talk to, a measure to announce and so forth. All right, there you go, Linton. We'll see how the uh, Liberal Party politicians respond now that they're in opposition. Ali's view is that uh, they'll be taking up every opportunity they can get. Ali, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you even more for all your years working with me on RM Breakfast. That was, you know, an absolute joy and pleasure and honour, I must say. But you've been reporting on politics for decades, Ali, as have I. You've won Walkley Awards for your political coverage I would like to, as you as you leave this this area for a while, get your final observations as a political reporter on politics today. Yeah, look, thank you for the opportunity, Fran. And again, thank you for all the opportunities working with you over the years. And it, it really does pick up on what uh, Linton was asking about. I've, I'd like to reflect on what I regard as one of the biggest changes that I've seen in this building over the years. And it goes to the way politicians manage the media. And th th this has been a bad thing for every single person in this country who deserves to hear from the people they elect, and we do pay their wages, about the decisions that they are making on behalf of the country. Now, when I first started with you, Fran, on breakfast back in, I don't know, 2008, 2009, 
Ministers like John Howard would regularly front up mm. to do difficult interviews. He was earlier, of course. It often took a lot of wrangling behind the scenes, but ministers by and large understood that going 10 rounds of the kitchen with you, Fran, or other serious interviewers was part of their job description. They had a duty. They had an obligation to speak to policies, explain to the country what they are doing. But down the years, that's changed. It reached a nadir in the Morrison government. There were some exceptions, but there were too many ministers, starting at the top with Scott Morrison, who would point blank refuse to speak with certain audiences. They weren't refusing to speak with you, Fran. They were refusing to speak to the many people who listened to Mm. the program. And these are the people that these ministers are accountable to. Instead, what they do or what they did is they adopted a media management strategy where they'd stand up for three minutes on morning television, answer a couple of questions, get their lines out, pop the footage out on their social media, then run away claiming that they had been available to the media, therefore they'd been accountable. It was shameful, Fran. But Um, Ali, some of that's our fault too, perhaps. I mean, the 24-hour news cycle means we do churn a bit too. So we gave them these platforms for the three-minute grabs, didn't we? Yep, that's fair enough. Uh, Maybe it's time for the media to reflect on the platforms that we do give give ministers and other politicians. Now, so far though, with the Albanese government, ministers have been available. It's still early days. Hopefully it continues that way. Yeah, well, we'll see. I think you're right because it is about accountability and these are elected officials and generally I think politicians benefit from coming on and answering the questions that people want to hear. I mean, that's that's their job. Like it's, like it's our job to ask them the right questions. Yeah. It's their job to be able to answer them. And, you know, in the olden days, Ali, when we were, I was in the gallery <laughs> too, wasn't alongside you, you know, we, we would get we would be able to talk directly to media media minders and advisors and get background on policy so we were more informed. That's harder to get to now, isn't it? Yeah, it definitely is, and we're all the worse for it. We are indeed. We're all the worse for losing you too, Ali. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. Um, Absolute pleasure. Thank you, Fran. That's it for the party room this week. We will, of course, be with you next week. PK will be back. Meanwhile, Alison Carabine goes off on her next adventure. See you, Ali. See you, Fran. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.